Thank you for joining me, Mark Grixtie, for this invitation to explore deeper together into the divinity, science, spaciousness, and intuition of hurt and healing with awe in trauma. So, Cynthia Swarsberg, thank you so much for joining me. I was really looking forward to seeing you today. I, I think we first met in Brazil and, and then New York. And, um, you know, it was, it was really my inauguration into the brain spotting community, brain spotting being a therapeutic modality that we both really do a lot of work in. And I was quite new. And I, I remember having a very warm, a lovely welcome from you that kind of helped ally some of my nerves and anxiousness about stepping into this new community and feeling like an imposter uh, wow. initially. So, uh, so thank you. I don't think I've ever told you that, but it was a very oh, welcome, beautiful sure. moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I liked the connection, so it felt easy to welcome you in. Oh. And it felt that um, you know you resonate with a lot, a lot of us, right? Mm. And it, it's, it's a hard thing to do sometimes, you know, with, uh, I've just, you know, a little personal share and then I'll kind of <laughs> all things, explore all things Cynthia in a moment. But it's a very hard thing to do. I find throughout my journey, my passage, whether it's professional, personal, and of course, the two can interface many times along the way. But in my journey, sometimes I felt like I'm on the periphery of a kind of a, a community of like-minded thinkers uh, a, in, America, in, in India, they call it a satsang, don't they? Like a spiritual community where together you grow and learn. It's not an individualistic thing. It's a group kind of process. And really the move through various trains and various things I've done into Brainsport, it felt like a certain amount of homecoming, you know, where there was this satsang of like yourself and David Grand, many like-minded thinkers. And I just thought, oh, this, this is easy to be here. This is to resonate <laughs> a heartfelt sense, not just uh, up here, you know. <laughs> yeah, hmm. I found that too, personally, in terms of walking other paths. And I think also sometimes, you know, we grow up in whatever arrangement we grow up in and we get this mindset of like, not feeling like I quite belong or like not feeling safe enough to be on the inside, but I don't want to be on the outside. So I'm like riding that edge. But I feel like in brain spotting as, um, as a clinician, I have felt very welcomed. And I mean, another spiritual communities that I've been involved with, I was very welcome too, but I also went in them at such a young age. So I had these hardened belief systems, you know, that, made it harder for me and I don't think it was in anybody else's mind as much as maybe mine but uh -huh. by the time I came to brain spotting I had cleared some of that and I felt such a warm invitation mm. and because you know we work with you know where the person's at like in any modality really but that's how we're trained as clinicians but in brain spotting we really believe so much in that innate wisdom that I think as professionals and even as trainers, we ride that same wave, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's been a huge gift in my life. It's uh, a wave is a lovely way of thinking about it, isn't it? It's something in flow and in process and, you know, there's, there's, there's so many levels to it and undercurrents and things. And, you know, when you were talking about that as well, you know, finding your group and, and when you were younger, maybe it was, felt different fitting in with certain groups because of where you were at developmentally and right. 
And I've been thinking about that a lot. I had a, another another birthday recently, which always gets me thinking about my age and stage and reflecting on things and how how I've changed. Yeah, I mean, could you say a bit about your journey in, in a way that, you know, kind of in a meaningful way that what's it been like for you working in the areas you do as you've as you've got older? You know, how have things changed for you? What have you noticed in yourself? Because I'm um, working it out for myself, so you can help me here. <laughs> yeah, so I think that when I was younger, as a clinician and as a, just a human, I was more um, in that interconnection. I think a little bit like more personally invested in a certain way. Mm. And as I've got, and also in other modalities, you work with transference, I think slightly differently. Mm-hmm. So in one of the modalities I was in, we encouraged the client to express their negativity towards us as clinicians. So it was taking on a lot of negativity. So in brain spotting, I found that we process or work slightly differently in the transference with the client and with the modality. So it's helped me more detach and also having walked an Al-Anon program, I've learned to detach with love. And as I've gotten stronger as a human, I feel like I have more agency of my own energy system. And that helps me tremendously. Mm. So I can sit with a great deal of compassion and presence. And in brain spotting, we are very focused on presence and attunement. And that that's like one of the best gifts that we have to bring to the client. Where in all modalities, that is the best gift that we have to bring to the client because even research shows that it's the relationship that really matters and has been the most helpful. But um, I think over the years, as I've strengthened within myself, that presence has gotten easier to be really in an open vessel with my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so, wow. to, and I just think as clinicians, like, we need to always do our own work. That's just my bias. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like I have to learn it from the inside out and the outside in if I'm learning a new modality. So I've always walked the path of whatever I was studying in terms of really learning it, experiencing it, being in the therapy of it. Um, well, I love this. Um... And just to come back to when you were talking about part of that process being a different relationship with your the way you attach or detach from certain clients. And this is such a rich and beautiful kind of area to foray into. Maybe we could explore that a little more because I'm curious about this detaching at one level. You're talking about it in terms of how I understand it, being able to not be over invested and to become kind of lost within the process of the client. But at the same time, detaching isn't rejecting and abandoning your client uh, in that kind of way. It sounds like a, a delicate balance. And when I, I do a lot of work in child psychology and attachment work and teachings and things like that. And so I was kind of, you know, taught very clearly all about attachment growing up into my profession. And attachment had a very certain kind of meaning. And then 
when I started kind of drifting more into Eastern approaches to therapy, attachment had a very different meaning. And, and I found myself in this little paradox of going, hold on, who am I? And my little identity was struggling, thinking, Do, where, where am I with attachment? What is attachment? And, you know, probably in my very simplified left brain black and white way I was trying to swing between which one of these made sense to me and of course I think I got to a point where they both complement each other if I allow them to <laughs> I try my best don't always succeed but but so yeah can you say a bit more about your your relationship with detachment in your work yeah so working with the limp clearing the limpid countertransference Shree and I have written digging into the difference between empathy and compassion so that's where the two meet for maybe with you, with the East and the West. Mm. So we've learned to feel empathic and be empathic with our clients. But the empathy part of our brain is different than when we're sitting with compassion. So Tanya Singer has done a lot of studies and Olga Klementsky and what they've discovered, and uh, there's many other people on their team, but what they have discovered is that it actually, you can be trained to go from empathy to compassion. And when you're in compassion, it's like, how can I best support in the, um, you to relieve the suffering of the other with kindness and care? And there's a lot that's coming out on compassion now. You know, people can take eight-week trainings and um, it can help shift you. So when we feel caught in the feeling state, then maybe that's a clue that we're, we've become so empathetic, but then that's leading me into my own psyche, my own um, system. Mm -hmm. But when I see, well, this is for you, this is about you, um, I can feel it, I can sense it, but then I can be bring my presence into the relationship with you. Like, I don't make it about myself, I make it about you. And I know that like consciously, we're not making it about ourselves. Like none of us as clinicians wanna go like, oh, it's, you know, it's all about me. It's not, it's about our clients, yes. But these are like the subtleties that I'm speaking. Subtlety. And you mentioned limbic countertransference. Is this, is this part of the, for you, is, is part of the, the journey in being able to make that difference between empathy and compassion and connect in a way that feels detached yet meaningful? Well, in brain spotting, we, um, it's, coined, it's spoken as limbic countertransference because when I'm sitting with the client, my limbic brain will respond faster than my neocortex. So I'm going to feel and experience a response like, oh, are you kidding? How could your parents ever, you know, like whatever that response is, or just the sheer shudder of pain that I may feel for another person before I have words to it. So if I, go from that shudder of pain into an empathic state without then bringing that understanding in it will it's just harder because i, I might feel um a he more heavy or 
whatever. But the limbic brain, that fight, flight, or freeze before I have the words. So that's what we reference when we talk about like the limbic brain, we're talking about the survival mechanisms or, you know, it could be fawn, like some way that I'm wanting to survive, but then I can come back on board when, when I feel it, I, I take note and then I can bring that my compassionate presence back. Uh-huh. So this is an interesting journey as you describe it for the therapist to be mindfully aware when you're having that that deep unconscious subcortical response to be able to mindfully be able to notice it. And then that becomes part of the work that in the between is between you and your client, right? Right. And different modalities will address that work differently and brain spotting. As soon as I notice it, I can just mark it and go, Oh, I, I need to, Oh, okay. And I just bring myself, we call it back in the tail of the comic mm. like where the client is the, the head of the comic. So whatever uh, adju- internal adjustments, but in any modality, if I just go, where's my left foot? Take a deep breath and then maybe move my eyes a little out of, off of the client and then come back, I can refocus. So I don't have to go into my own narrow blind spotted tunnel vision. So this so, is this feels like a beautiful, mindful piece of, self-care on the therapist part whilst attending you know delicately and in an attuned way to to whatever process is coming up for for the person you're working with yeah i mean Mm. you know you know from the attachment world Mm. that we're in a field of connection right like you and i are in this field of connection Mm. and we're constantly adjusting Mm. i mean we're constantly not we're unconsciously (laughs) but we're constantly we're you know like our immune system is adjusting all the time so many parts of ourselves are adjusting all the time the more we can bring awareness and mindfulness to our practice the more attentive we can be because the more present we are as with all aspects of our lives but this is you know we're a work in progress i mean i'll also speak for myself I'm a work in progress, you know, mm. but I choose to make that a part of my awareness focus. Mm. You know? mm. It brings up a feeling for me, you know, hearing this and, and, you know, thinking, reflecting on these kind of ways of understanding and being with a client by primarily being with yourself in a way, being really connected to what's going on in your own physical embodied sensation as well as being in a relationship is such a a beautiful internal achievement of oneself as well as with other at the same time Uh, and it feels nurturing just the way you were talking about there I felt a part of me felt like I was being hugged as you were describing that and I love that and sometimes it's called co-regulation isn't it as well these these terms sometimes are helpful these terms sometimes seem to remove us from a sense of love and connection but if we are going with that term co-regulation it feels like what's going on for me and for you is there's such a, a wonderful interface or such a wonderful crossover there. And if we can encapsulate respect and use this within the therapy, this can be a part of deep internal healing for the client. But I'm also interested for selfish reasons, of course, 
in how this can also be part of our own healing rather than burning out and being traumatized over and over again with what was you know the extent of really significant trauma that we're working with as therapists you know it feels like there is this flow where we can be healing together um with our clients and is this something that you've noticed i certainly know in my practice i've probably burn out a lot less than i used to in in using the kind of work that you're talking about right Yes, I mean, I, and pe- people that come to the trainings often feel revitalized because of the burnout. And we get burnt out when we, um, you know, we walk out of a session and we might feel like frustrated, but we don't always connect the dots, right? Like I may not re- realize that there's something that my client said reminded me of something earlier in my life. So, um, one day I remember it really clearly where I had a, gone to work. I was feeling good. I had a few clients that, and then I came home and it's like, why am I feeling this way? That I didn't want to like blame anything per se, but I wanted to make some kind of a connection. And I just let myself sit with the inquiring question. What, what, where did this come from? When did this start? And as soon as I made the connection, I felt like I, because in a way I felt a little dissociated from my flow. So as soon as I made that connection, I felt more in alignment again within myself, you know? So we can, and, and then you feel less burned out. But also when we, I sit with you with, in a state of compassion, I'm not taking on, I'm not over-identifying with, and I'm not looking into the relationship for something that's not meant to be there. Right? There was something else you said before. I was thinking of like the development of, as a therapist, but it will come back again. I can't remember what it was. Right. Um, but the co. Oh, I know what it was. It was so years ago when I was doing more energy body work called core energetics, I would feel so affected energetically, but I didn't really quite have a frame of reference for what was happening in this session. And now with brain spotting, because I'm sitting in such a quieter state, where in core energetics, I'm like moving around with the client and we're doing all kinds of different emoting exercises. But sitting in that silence and riding these waves with the client as they go between their um, sympathetic and parasympathetic system, you know, um, I started to realize that I'm riding the wave and it's, there's a fine line. So this is what I've been exploring lately is in the old days, I don't know if I was dissociating or whether it's high attunement. Because when I'm really in this deep co-regulation, I'm, it's just a flow. This, and it's like, it's a beautiful dance. And when I'm dissociating, I don't feel that same way. So I think that over time, as we fine tune ourselves, I can, trust the process in this space with the client more. 
Trust the process. Yeah. Mm. Trust sounds like um, a beautiful word to use there, doesn't it? There's something about trusting in an approach and a kind of engagement, a relationship that is deep and maybe not full of full of technique in one way. But in the absence of the technique, there's the space to be going into a deep connection, a deep trust that the client, the person you're working with, the system is there and it's nature has programmed it to heal. It's there and it's healing if you can hold that space together. It's a beautiful alchemy, isn't it? When you can come together in that non-dissociative space with each other and see what happens. That, that takes trust, doesn't it? We're not very often schooled in that way are we when we're training into our various uh, modalities of psychology psychotherapy psychiatry body work trust is something we try and put a p-value to probability or something you know we try and uh, assess to bits and i love trust and the more i've trusted trust the more um i found my work has gone to a deeper and deeper level mm-hmm. trust is a beautiful thing isn't it and um it's something I think I was certainly schooled out of when I was trained to be a clinical psychologist over here in the UK. And it's probably taken me quite a while to get back to that in a way that I can really, you know, trust in it itself without having to be, um, I suppose, indoctrinated into some belief system that is, which is psychology I'm talking about now, that is so embedded and imbued with defences <laughs> that it defends itself so readily that it actually keeps such a strong distance between you and what you're trying to work with the human the person the spirit whatever's there psychology's almost kind of banished that in many ways and the, the trust has helped me come back towards that and this brings me to the other word in your lovely book the curious voyage a rule-breaking guidebook to authenticity i mean authenticity and trust in a cell in the way i'm thinking about them are our rule-breaking trust and authenticity this is primary, this is present, this is being awake and being connected to what is rather than some preconception of what should be, you know, some kind of agenda about where we're going to take our client. And so, yeah, authenticity, I'm interested to hear more about about anything to do with that, Cynthia. Well, I think it's kind of like what we're talking about is Mm. if I bring my, my, as much of my personal authentic self in the moment, then um, then there is that level of trust that's there that, that supports a client to go even deeper. And when you were talking before, I was thinking about trust versus mistrust is one of the basic first Ericksonian um, stages of development. And it's interesting also when we were talking about co-regulation because so much trust has been torn for our clients that when we are sitting there in that co-regulation, and Dan Siegel talks a lot about this in the interpersonal neurobiology, that we are offering back to something that can be healed that's really preverbal, you know? So, but the more I can be present you know, either with, like if I'm a mom with my own child, so you know this from the attachment work, then, but now as the clinician, the more presence I bring, the more authentic, the more in the here and now, the more 
I'm not worrying about a lot of things or trying to prove myself or doing what I'm supposed to do. Like, so that's what I mean when I say authentic. And you can trust, like, I'm just being myself and you can feel enough of that. I think it's such a gift we have to give to our clients. You know, and the, the book is interesting. So many clinicians have said how helpful it's been to them. And they're also now giving it to clients. I do have some worksheets and how people can guide people through the book. But it's taking people through that journey of like, what is true? What are my values? What is real for me? And how do I show up with that? That's lovely. And of course, your, the link to your book will be down, right down below here for those that want to have a click on that and uh, peruse it and, and to get a copy of that. And I've had a, a good read of it. And it's been really, uh, really lovely to to look into it. And I'm understanding it from, I'm reading, I'm reading it, I'm understanding it from different angles. And one of the angles that, that came across to me that you've just mentioned there really about, you know, how clients might read it and understand their, their inner voice and their inner story and their, their sensations and, and beliefs, all these, these things are sometimes now called more often now these days called parts in a way. And I know you and I have some interesting thoughts to, to, to share about parts work and, I think, you know, just to kind of put a caveat around that, parts work can be become a part in itself where we start to take a very individualistic and reductionist approach to what parts are. And I think all of the recent developments and the new kind of um, approaches to understand and work with parts can be really helpful as an access point. I think the flip side of that that I've noticed, it can also be quite reductionist and we can end up almost like a chessboard with all these parts that seem to be heading off in different directions and different moves and which can be completely confusing uh, for the client. But I'll also be honest, for the therapist too, when you've got 101 parts going off all over the place and you're trying to kind of keep it. Uh, and almost it can be a, an individualised kind of understanding of these different parts. And the way I, I don't know if this ties in with you, but the way I really enjoy parts work and looking at your book, it kind of really brought this home to me was that sometimes we have to have a bit of dualistic kind of approach to be able to unblend and recognize, separate things, to be mindful of them, but only really to be able to put them back into more of an integrated, interrelated kind of way of understanding these things, to be able to come back to the whole, if you like. And I, and I think sometimes in the work that can be tricky and get get lost a, a little especially with you know real complexity and you know dissociative identity disorders and these kind of parts right yeah yeah um so in the book there is a meditation exercise of dialoguing with three voices where there's like there's the best of me, you know, maybe the higher power, the higher self, whatever you want to call it. And then there's the part of me that's my ego, which is more your egoic functioning skills. So like I can direct my, gee, I'm having a problem. I need to sit down and meditate. Like that would be my ego's wisdom, right? But then there's like, I'm having a problem with like the fact that I'm feeling a deep conflict. So I can help myself up to a certain point, but then maybe I need that connection to that higher power, that wisdom, almost like an inner therapist. 
voice, you know, and to allow that, not allow, but to open up that possibility for an internal dialogue, or you can, you know, externalizing gestalt therapy, they do like three chairs or in, um, constellation work. It's a whole other way of working with different parts or, you know, the internal family systems, however you want to work with it. But from that place of connecting and, and um, hearing, sitting with the wounds, the pains to support that integration, that connection and that presencing. Before I was just working with somebody who was going through that because, you know, in our adult voice, I might appear as an adult, but I'm sounding like I'm a little bit furious because something's not going my way is like in transactional analysis, they talk about a parent, child, and adult, right? So this adult voice maybe is not present in that state of frustration. It's not the wisest voice in my whole system, shall we say. But if I open that up to say, hey, what is this frustration all about? And sit with it and discover it, discover that it's a pain in my heart or my belly or you know, the temples in my head, wherever that pain may be living inside of me and get to know it. It's about getting to know. And then once I hear, because anybody really longs to be heard and understood, right? So to those, there's parts of us that never were heard and understood. But we're here today to, you know, you and I, for example, talking to each other, there's many parts that also grew up in a good, solid ways mm. that can be with that. But I do think the other piece that I want to address is, you know, generational, arch, archetypical, like that collective unconscious. It's so complex that... And, you know, I start out with the book by saying we're all connected. It's all one. We are like on some level, we're all connected, you know, and um, <clears throat> what I am experiencing, I'm not the only person that ever experienced it. I'm not the only person in my family, not, not the only person in my lineage, not the only person in my country. I mean, there's some commonality that's there too, right? Mm -hmm. So I just sort of quench. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, at a personal level, I sometimes notice a switch between those parts where I'm really open and loving of the commonality, the collective, the kind of beautiful essence of all things being together, the oneness and the isness of being. And that's usually when I'm in my most yeah. pleasant and relaxed, <laughs> thoughtful and, and enlightened state. But I never stay there so long because then after a while I can notice myself switching and I can switch into another part that starts to want to divide everything up, break everything up into little parts. And the whole the oneness is the, isn't there anymore. And, you know, I can get caught in this egoic trap where my consciousness, I suddenly believe, is the essence of who I am. And then I want to over control <laughs> the situation <laughs> to make everything safe and fine. And, and the, the time I most need the kind of integrated self. So, I find there's this pendulation, this movement, these waves, this crescendos and decrescendos of 
of movement and this dynamic sense of flow. Um, and I'm learning to step back and notice that they're all valid, but to be able to not get caught up too much in certain certain ones when I don't need them to certain parts, if you like. And, and they're, they're, these are internal parts, you know. Right. And it's, it, it, yeah, go yeah. on, sorry, come in. Yeah. You know, that inner observer, by strengthening our inner observer. And that's why I really feel like it comes back to the, a lot comes back to our bodies. Mm. Like if I can feel the vibrational difference inside my body, those are really good clues that um, I don't, I don't feel right. Something feels off. I'm, I'm feeling more tense. I'm feeling more tension. I got that, that pain came back, whatever those clues are for us. That's like our body talking the same way the inner observer can say, um, I think I'm in my ego right now. <laughs> you know, like I'm, this is getting a little too egoic or I can hear a tone in my voice different. Like we each have like little clues for ourselves around that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I like that. Those little clues and, and we, we, over time we get to see them clearer and clearer, don't we? It, yeah. It, it's really, um, it's really fascinating these you know this this is how i really like understanding and work with parts without it being again perhaps my ego as therapist taking over and wanting to define every single part separately and differently and put names and badges and visions and images and sounds to each part maybe that will happen naturally but that's coming from within the client's body but without projecting that on um to create that space for I suppose the, the mystical, the mythical, the unknown to be able to come through, which could even be generational. And I love what, hearing what you're saying there, that this is probably beyond our conscious thinking and the, our poor little thinking brains are working as hard as they can, but they can only know so much. <laughs> and our body doesn't really have words, but it has a massive amount of information, generational information. The fact that I've got arms and I can move them, that's got to be a generational resource, right? This has come from somewhere. <laughs> If I can notice and be and feel with those, then there's an inner wisdom that I'm connecting to in a kind of holistic, whole brain, whole body approach. Right. Yeah, I think that as a clinician working with the parts, that a lot just organically arises. This is just for myself with my clients. I feel like you hear it. It's organically comes from the client. And there's a lot that we can support without needing to initiate a, the and direct, but with invitation. I like to work with invitation from a place of inviting curiosity, consideration. Um, so people are getting a lot of benefit out of parts work. Yeah. And um, in Brain spotting, though, I feel like it's so important that we stay in the tail of that comet mm. and that we be in the presence with all parts of our client, but not to initiate that, um, but in, invite with curiosity, but take the lead from the client at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's beautiful work when we can achieve that and it feels you know when you're in that zone in that space with a client and again we can pendulate in and out of that and that's okay isn't it but just to notice when we're out and just to 
hold the space to come back into that attunement, that connection and the invitation. I like that to invite the client. To, and they may be invited from a thinking place. I want to work on this. But there may be a deeper wisdom that actually wants to work on that. And this is in our you know, work we do, we usually find that we're working on something other than the initial um, agenda that maybe was set by the client, the therapist or some referral or something like that. But here's an invitation for you. It's a nice, easy question. One I'm wrestling with every day more and more so, but I'm kind of enjoying opening myself up more to this part of mine. And that's a death part, really. Um, whatever that means, right? <laughs> and I'm not trying to define death in any way or have some simple answer because I think that would miss the point altogether. But do you understand death as a part? And if so, um, do you find over time, over your life, your career, your relationship, you developing a different connection with death and whatever that may mean? Well, I think that there's, we grieve, we have these little deaths all along the way, mm. the death of the wish, the death of the hope. And there's a certain kind of grief that goes with that. Mm. Um, at my end of life, there's also um, hearing more hardships or ailments and sicknesses or near deaths for loved ones makes it um, hard, harder. So that takes me then to that next level of spirituality. Like, you know, the veil can be thin it doesn't have to be so permanent mm, mm. Um, but i would never really know until i was up against death facing you know facing death to know how open-minded i am to that theory or not right <laughs> i do know that i had a personal experience with it one day when my dog and my uh, stepdad died um, my dog in the morning my dad in the afternoon and there was something that just like was such a spiritual experience with my dog. And I happened to have somebody happened to call me while he was like in the process of dying, who works with animals. And we had this beautiful experience that I just felt like some veil was lifted and I got to witness and spirit experience a different state of being or reality. Um, which carried me a long time, you know, around my grief for both of them. Mm. And it certainly has helped inform me of a different state of life. But I mean, I also, when people, for some reason, a number of young men in my life had passed in their fifties, like one year after the other. And I had no idea uh, almost about how deep and connected I was to the person till the, the loss came and the loss came with such waves of pain um, that it took a while. But to me, grief takes a while. Grief has its own course, you know? And I think that with death, I think is, you know, ending, but in every ending brings a new beginning. You know, so there's the loss, the death of, you know, um, a relationship, a marriage. Um, to re the more I can hold the bigger picture, 
the more I can see the gifts in it, mm -hmm. the, in these kinds of changes. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't be here today with you talking in this very moment if everything, if things didn't happen in my life all up to this very moment, mm -hmm. you know? And to me, that's like, all of that becomes now the gift. So I just sit with it in those ways. I know that people experience loss differently. So clinically just, I feel like when I'm sitting with somebody who's had a loss, I'm bearing witness to whatever's there for them mm. and just offering my presence. Because there are certain things that are beyond, you know, just no words. Yeah, I'm feeling it as you're saying it. And thank you for giving such a beautiful and personal experience of, of losses and deaths and the, the sophisticated and complex meanings that they've had for you, multidimensional kind of connection with these losses and also the gifts they're in and this kind of this sort of beautiful holistic way you've described it and I, and I think you have such a lovely presence I'm sure when you're sitting with your people that are experiencing those deaths um, it just feels like the greatest respect to hold that space with them and to be able to explore in a way that you've done to explore those losses and I think it's um there's something sublime and beautiful in my own experiences as well about as painful, heartbreaking and, and regrettable, but also beautiful and sublime about some of the deaths that I've really had to, um, you know, really embrace emotionally, could not just put aside, dissociate from, you know, right. <laughs> been forced, been forced to really meet this deep and rich and powerful emotion that is just, feels like nothing else you know and you know it when it's there there's no avoiding it is there and it's just right. and what do we do it I mean you can push or push it away or, or move towards it and I think this is such a challenge isn't it when we've got that kind of loss to move towards it and I'm hearing what you're saying the importance of having someone trustworthy and that could well be a, a family member or a good therapist or whoever it may be to be able to hold that space and then but what I love in your description it, it it's a it's a certain way of thinking to think that death is an ending, a finish, and it's over. That things are much more. I suppose it's a kind of a Taoist kind of way of looking at things, but much more process, much more infinite and interdependent and interrelated. There's a kind of a connection and flow that continues on throughout this and beyond the pain, and maybe even you know in its own way beyond life as we know it. And I just find that really. Ooh. Fascinating just to open up to that and feel into it and see see what that brings when I'm when I'm feeling a, a you know deep loss. And, and I grief. also think that mm. nothing like somebody once taught me love never leaves love. Right. So when I'm making sad, but like when I lo lose a loved one, mm. I have everything that they also gave me. I have all the experience that we had together. I don't lose every minute every second it's not that like either or you know it's um it's still like I have these gifts but I have them in different ways or I have like the gift of you know like for example I have the gift of knowing how to ride a bike you know that's something that my dad gave me right even if he's not here anymore I have that gift I can make that connection in the moments that I'm on a bike and the joy that I, you know, love riding a bike. 
Um, and even in the hardships or those tough relationships, I think our clients come up with, you know, come to us in mulling over and trying to grieve and release from. There's some, sometimes when we can see the larger, like what, what did I gain from this? What is the gift from this? There is um, Colin Tippins, I talk about it in the book, talks about radical forgiveness. And it's like, not that forgiveness is to accept anybody's actions, but if I see that um, this hardship taught me how resourceful I am, you know, something like that, that I can take away. And I can be appreciative of what I learned about myself through that. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, you know, culturally where we are, there's, there's a lot of opportunity of us to, <laughs> to meet and embrace hardship in so many different ways right now. And we can only use it as a platform for healing, development, hopefully compassion, as you were talking about it earlier, authenticity, love and respect. And I love that, you know, you've take in your voice and in your being as such a non-directive, open, accepting, loving way. That, that you clearly bring and I, you know the gift of you being here right now with me on a podcast is something that's really touching me I can feel it right in my chest Cynthia so I know I know we have to finish in a moment I just want to share with you that I can hear it as well but I can feel it even more so so you. you know it's just been beautiful spending this time with you and um thank you, you so to... much for sharing all of your before experience we... and wisdom before we end I do want to say sure. one thing about the hardship yeah because that's a hard one. And it, like you talked about, like how have I grown and changed? Mm. Like, because that younger social worker in me wants to like go and like save and do this and do that. And mm -hmm. so we can do some advocacy work, but what, what helped me um, during, well, we had a lot of like riots here and um, George Floyd and then the, and with COVID that I would, sit with the question, what is mine to do? And by sitting with that question, I felt like that was helped me with my compassion of how I could give and in what ways I could give. Um, so that was something that I, a question that I learned, you know, from the, my own spiritual path and something that helped me to, um, and still does today, like, um, you know, with the wars going on right now and finding ways that I can give them the best that I can in the moments. Mark, this has been wonderful. So thank you. It's really fun to see you again. You too. And thank you for those wise words. What is mine to do? And thanks for sharing uh, your beautiful gifts. And uh, they've become part and will stay with me uh, long after this podcast. And I hope to see you before too long, Cynthia. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. And if you're curious to find out more about this guest of the show, then please see their links below. Thank you for joining me for Awe in Trauma. Until next time, bye-bye.